of the Feminist Mormon House Size Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy series for the FMH podcast. I'm really excited because now we have moved away from the long list of wives of Joseph Smith and we're able to talk about some new ideas, hopefully ideas and stories you haven't heard of, probably some that you have, especially if you are a lover of church history or Utah history. I hope you'll bear with me as I flesh out this year. It's the chronology of this year's series. There are so many, many interesting things to talk about. And so I'm going to try to keep it in as a chronological order as possible. But every once in a while, we're going to dive in and go back in in the past and come back in the future a little bit, just because there's so many things happening. As we know, we like to tell history in a very linear way, but history does not happen necessarily linearly it's branched out. There are a lot of things going on at the all at once. So hopefully we'll be able to get into that. But today we are going to be still talking about Nauvoo. We have to get from Nauvoo to the Utah period. And there are some things that happen with practice during that time. If you're just turning it, tuning in, I would recommend that you go back to episode one, Fanny Alger. But if you haven't listened to the series for a long time, or if you've forgotten about Nauvoo, I would recommend that you go listen to the Nauvoo polygamy episode where we talk about all of the sort of happenings going on and the sort of the politics around polygamy in Nauvoo, because that's where we're going to pick up today. We're actually going to start with the martyrdom where Joseph Smith is killed. I know it's a story that Mormons have heard ad nauseum, but I'm going to tell it again because it is an important, critical part of Mormon history, not just because of the death of the prophet, but it really solidified and affected Mormonism. In fact, it still continues to affect Mormonism today. Uh, the story I'm going to read, this comes from actually pbs.org, where they tell the story of the martyrdom. And they remind us that Joseph Smith, dies at the age of 38, and his his brother Hiram Smith dies at the age of 44. Let's get into the story. In addition to being prophet and president of the church, Joseph Smith also served as mayor, commander of the Nauvoo Legion, state militia, justice of the peace, and university chancellor. All of this is happening before his death. Now, non-Mormons were terrified of Mormons, not just because of rumors of you know, polygamy and adultery and um, mobs and, and raiding and all of that kind of things. But they were also really afraid of this concentration of power and the sort of church's belief of a theocratic union uh, where our spiritual, economic, and political matters all were under the control of the priesthood. Plus, you know, we had a lot of weird doctrines like temple ordinances for living and the dead continuing revelation, new scriptures, which was considered blasphemy. And um, Joseph was also acquiring a lot of enemies. He had political and economic enemies, and uh, there were now exposés being written about him. Illinois anti-Mormons, perhaps assisted by the old enemies from Missouri, joined with a bunch of other Mormon 
defectors from Nauvoo. Several had held high church positions, and when they were excommunicated, this fueled their efforts to destroy Joseph Smith and the church. His enemies were growing. They were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He had plans to expand. He he wasn't going to stop. Uh, he wanted to resettle in the West, but these were obviously cut short by his death. Now remember, we talked about the Nauvoo Expositor. One of Joseph's close friends and colleagues turned on him, you know, allegedly being upset with the practice of plural marriage and some of Joseph's other uh, behaviors, and he publishes the Nauvoo Expositor. It's considered a public nuisance by the Nauvoo City Marshal, and under orders from Joseph Smith and the city council, they destroy the Nauvoo Expositor. Of course, the Nauvoo Expositor was publishing uh, sort of an expose on all of the reasons why Joseph was a fallen prophet. Because Joseph orders this illegal destruction, this alleged illegal destruction of the expositor, his enemies really have some leverage now to press criminal charges against him. And they kind of incite this riot. They appear before a non-Mormon justice in Nauvoo and are exonerated on the charges against them. Of course, most of the power in Nauvoo is church power, so it makes sense why they were exonerated. There becomes this call for the extermination of Mormons. On June 18th, Joseph Smith mobilizes his troops to protect Nauvoo. Things are growing crazy now. The government wants to exterminate the Mormons. Joseph is going to fight back. When Illinois Governor Thomas Ford apparently sided with opposition and ordered the church leaders to stand trial on the same charges, this time in Carthage instead of Nauvoo so they could get a fair balance of power, Joseph and Hiram first thought that they would appeal to U.S. President John Taylor, but then decided instead to cross the Mississippi and run away. They were going to run away and escape to the West. We don't usually talk about that in church history, but... You know, there are rumors. So Joseph was called a coward by many. Some people say that's what brought him back was his pride. Other people say that uh, he really believed he was going to change things at this time. And others just felt like he was trying to do the right thing. Um, but family and friends who felt abandoned by him convinced him to return and surrender. And this is where he prophesied he would be going like a lamb to the slaughter and would be murdered in cold blood. Joseph urged Hiram to save him and stay and succeed him as a prophet, but Hiram refuses and accompanies him to Carthage. They're, they're promised a fair trial, but obviously things are way too political at this point to get a fair trial anywhere at this point with anyone involved saying that their need to satisfy the people, the governor ignores clear warnings of danger and kind of disbands most of the troops. He then leaves the hostile Carthage Greys to guard the jail and took the most dependable troops with him to Nauvoo. So now Joseph has enemies, supposed enemies, guarding him to keep him safe in, in the prison. A mob of between 100 and 200 armed men, many of them from the disbanded Warsaw militia, gathered in the late afternoon with blackened faces that they had blackened with mud and gunpowder, and they stormed the jail. This would happen really fast. In less than two minutes, they overcome the feigned resistance from the greys. They rush upstairs. 
You can imagine the chaos inside that room, Joseph and Hiram and others, Willard Richards sitting there, you know, John Taylor, hearing this noise outside, knowing what is coming. They hear the footsteps, the rush, the gunfire, and then they fire through the closed door. Hiram shot first, dies instantly. John Taylor, as we know, tries to escape out a window, and he is shot five times, but he survives and would later become the church's third president. And only Willard Richards, another apostle, would survive unharmed. He would be needed to go out and basically spread word and um, try to get help. But that leaves Joseph, the man at the center of all of this. He also tries to get out the window to deflect attention from the two survivors inside. He is hit in the chest and collarbone with two shots from the open doorway and two more from outside the window. His famous final words as he fell to the ground outside were the Masonic cry, O Lord my God. As rumors spread that the Mormons are coming, the mob gets afraid and they disperse. There are some that say that in his last days, Joseph uh, told the saints that his that he had completed all that God had required of him and that he was now under no special protection. This, of course, causes many to think of the events that had happened. Now, of course, Nauvoo becomes kind of a hauntingly dangerous and yet disruptive place. It eventually will empty out. A lot of people leave as the saints start to leave. But, you know, it's not like Joseph dies and the saints get up and leave. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of things that have to be done. And this is important because most of the Quorum of the Twelve now, at this point, are all away on missions. We talked about this in Nauvoo. A lot of them are trying to um, advocate for Joseph's political power outside of Nauvoo. They're trying to look into a presidency, perhaps trying to have other connections. Other people are on a pro-polygamy campaign to try to dispel the rumors of the church and kind of gather the saints, get more, more missionary efforts in place. Joseph is dead, and the the those of the 12 that are out on missions rush home and get to Nauvoo by August. It takes them a few months to get home. When they arrive, they see the saints in a major situation disarray. And if you want to know more about this, you can listen to the episode with John Hamer, Ben Park, Daniel Mooney, and Kaimi Wenger, where they talk about the secession crisis. And I will link to that. This is very important. It's very complicated. And I love, I love how complicated it is because I think contemporary Mormons, contemporary Latter-day Saints, like to think that we have God's one true priesthood, and it's this really clean-cut line, back to Joseph Smith, back to Jesus. And that's not how it is. If you listen to how messy it is, it makes sense that we have so many schisms, that we have so many fundamentalists that, that really believe they have claim to priesthood authority, because... This was a mess. You can see in that episode that this was a mess. Joseph had promised uh, the prophet's mantle to several people, and it was a really difficult thing for them to disentangle that. One of the people he had promised it to, allegedly, was Sidney Rigdon. 
He is one of the main characters to dispute Brigham over church leadership. As you'll see in the Secession Crisis podcast, Rigdon loses his bid for a variety of reasons. He eventually disappears from Mormon history altogether. He would return to Pittsburgh and organize the, quote, Church of Christ, which had a few that also opposed the Twelve or felt that Joseph was a fallen prophet, or many that rejected polygamy. The church never got a lot of traction. Meanwhile, Emma, now a widow, battles Brigham Young over rights and property, and he used her opposition to polygamy in his favor. Now, of course, the the thing that Emma would have as a disadvantage for her is she was bitterly opposed to the practice and would long deny that Joseph practiced it after his death, even though she stood in for some of the marriages. She would dismiss it. She would outright deny it. And Brigham used this because Joseph had in his last few years, gathered the strongest leaders, his strongest friends around them, and brought them into this practice, whether by marrying their own daughters or their own wives or giving them plural wives. They were all complicit in this practice now. And you have Emma, who now is relieved of this, what she considers an abomination, a total perversion of the gospel. She's so relieved that this is gone and Brickham's saying, oh, it's not gone. It's just, it's just barely getting started. And this becomes a huge problem for them. They, they also have a lot of legal issues to work out. And there, there's currently some scholarship on these property rights that are coming out. And I'm really excited for that when it comes out in the future. But this is a huge, huge issue. Emma and Brigham start going head to head. Emma argued it couldn't possibly be a divine principle um, to have plural marriage, and Brigham used that to show her disloyalty and unfaithfulness to the Quorum of the Twelve. Leaving West was not the plan after Joseph's death. Brigham's diaries show him obsessed with day-to-day operations. He's too busy to plan going West. He is supervising the building of the 70s Hall, the Nauvoo House, and a home for Lucy Mack Smith. He and other apostles are building brick homes for themselves, and they are moving out of their log homes. Things are still happening. They, it's just not on their radar. They're, they're in such transition and sort of disruption from the death of Joseph Smith that they're, they're just not thinking of fleeing yet. They were also organizing the Nauvoo Agricultural Society and the University of the City of Nauvoo, and of course, still the temple. Brigham said he prayed whether the saints should stay in Nauvoo and got the answer that yes, they should stay. By 1845, Nauvoo had about 11,000 or more residents and rivaled Chicago as one of the biggest cities in Nauvoo. So it's no small city. This is a very powerful city. It's acquiring wealth. Now remember, Brigham is still married to um, a lot of women. And after Joseph dies, what does Brigham do? He steps up and he marries Joseph's wives too. Sort of a biblical um, dynastic relationship saying, I'm going to take in, you know, my fallen brother's wives like they do in the Bible. Brigham is busy. Brigham has ego. Brigham has a ton of stress. He's arguing with Joseph's widow. They're playing all these subversive games, these political games. He's arguing other men for power. He's taking on a lot of uh, responsibility. A lot of things are happening. And he's also taking on a lot of wives in a practice, in a practice that is both secretive and doesn't really 
support this sort of lifestyle in the open. Almost immediately, Brigham's wives become unhappy. By the time of Joseph's death, we know that Brigham had married at least four women in addition to his legally recognized wife, Marianne. Because of the dangerous atmosphere and political pressure, these were not lived openly. Brigham would continue to marry women at a rapid at a rapid rate before leaving West in February 1846. But you have to imagine now the man directing the practice, making rules for it like those Joseph gave William Clayton before he had died. Remember, Joseph was making these rules like, like when William Clayton came to him about his, you know, wife and Joseph said, no, you can't have her. You can't have more than two sisters at one time. That's a rule. Except for me, I can have three if I need to. Those kind of rules. Now, now Brigham's doing these things. He is also dealing with old feuds, then, you know, the construction of an entire city. He is also rapidly organizing this church. You can imagine that it was lonely and it was a lonely and confusing time for many of these women as they would not have the care and attention they would have dreamed of a marriage would have been about. According to Leonard Arrington's conservative estimates, after marrying Lucy Decker, Harriet Cook, Augusta Adams Cobb in 1842 and 43, he also married Lucy Ann's sister, Clarissa Decker, which whom he would have five kids with, Clarissa Ross, whom he would have four kids with, Margaret Maria Ally, he had two kids with her, Emmeline Free, he had ten children with her, and Margaret Pierce, he had one child with her, and of course the children would come later. He also took on uh, the plural wives of Joseph Smith, and remember, we spoke of that earlier, Louisa Beeman, Emily Dow Partridge, who he'd have seven kids with, Zina D. Huntington, he'd have one with her, and five others were considered caretaker marriages who were older women or spinsters, which might be where we get this sort of folk history of polygamy was only for the widows because five of them were caretaker marriages, and Brigham made it very clear when talking about these people that, oh, no, 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 no. Nothing's happening here. These are just to take care of these old widows. I'm not into old ladies. Arrington lists Eliza in this category and never considered her a connubial wife, which is interesting. Uh, he doesn't think that Brigham and Eliza ever, you know, lived like a real husband and wife or slept together. Late in November 1845, special rooms in the temple's attic were plastered and painted and borrowed carpet was laid. Brigham said he gave himself entirely to the work of the Lord in the temple. The temple was dedicated and they sealed lots of wives to husbands and started performing lots of laws of adoption and sealings to the children that took place. And these would continue until February when the 12 left Nauvoo. Now, if you're going to be in Salt Lake for the summer, you really need to come out to Sunstone. Uh, Cheryl, Bruno, and Brian Hales are going to be having a sort of uh, debate on the law of adoption and when it started. We know that it started with Brigham Young, but there's some evidence to suggest that actually Joseph Smith... Um, brought up the practice, and I heard a rumor that that's what's in the Council of the 50 Minutes, so we'll see. Apparently, they completed ordinances for more than 5,000 people before they left West. That's a lot of temp work. So by February 1846, now Brigham has at least 12 wives, nine children, and a few foster kids. Scholars bring her some foster claim that Brigham would have married some 40 women, the vast majority of his total of 56 wives, before departing Nauvoo. So we have Arrington saying maybe, a, you know, a handful of women, and we have 
uh, Newell Brinkhurst and Craig Foster that claim that Brigham would have married 40 women, 40 out of his 56, before departing Nauvoo. Do you understand what it would take to acquire 40 wives, 40 secret plural wives, while he's doing all these other things? I know I keep talking about all these things he's doing, but that is some busy busy time. This comes from the wives of the prophet, the plural wives of Brigham Young to Heber J. Grant from Craig Foster's essay. And they also claim that 160 additional prominent Mormon leaders would take around 400 plural wives in just one and a half years from June 1844 to 1846. Let me say that again. 160 prominent Mormon leaders would take around 400 plural wives in just a year and a half. 400 women are married to 160 men. The The practice is just exploding now. And you can imagine what that's like for the anti-polygamy detractors in the church. Before the secession crisis, the men that we know of living in, polygam- living in plural marriage were Joseph and Hiram. Hiram had two wives, and he didn't, he didn't do this enthusiastically. He did this somewhat reluctantly. Brigham Young... Um, obviously had his some 56 wives. Heber C. Kimball, who would go on to have 45 wives. Willard Richards would go on to have 14. William Smith would have 22 wives. Brother of, and he was a brother of Joseph Smith Jr. and was removed from the quorum due to apostasy in 1839, but readmitted a couple days later in 1839. That's how excommunication worked back then. You'd get kicked out for a few days and, and then they'd let you back in. And then he was uh, excommunicated again in 1845. Um, he followed James String for a time. And then he started his own LDS church in Covington, Kentucky. In later years, he joined the reorganized LDS church, now the Community of Christ, and was a, peti- a petitioner for the RLDS Patriarch from 1872 to 1893. He introduced polygamy to the String at Mormons, and his church in Covington, Kentucky, was also disintegrated after he introduced spiritual wifery into it. So he was kind of um, an interesting character, Joseph Smith's little brother. He he was going around joining churches, starting his own churches, introducing polygamy here, denying it here. He also denied he and his brother had ever practiced or taught spiritual wifery or any other form of polygamy. So he is an interesting character as well. That's uh, William Smith. So other men that had that had wives that we know of, Thomas Bullock would have three, Orson Pratt would go on to have ten, William Clayton would also go on to have ten. Remember, William Clayton was Joseph's trusted secretary and scribe. Orson Hyde would have nine wives, Parley P. Pratt would have eleven, Amasa Lyman would have nine, but would later be excommunicated in 1867. Yeah, John Taylor would have nine wives. Edwin D. Woolley Sr. would have six. Erastus Snow would have 16. John D. Lee would have 19. Not all of those stayed with him at all. Ezra T. Benson, um, different from Ezra Taft Benson, would have eight wives. Wilford Woodruff would have nine-ish. We'll talk about that later. Um, Albert Carrington would have two wives. Charles C. Rich would have six. George A. Smith would marry seven. John Willard Young would have six. Isaac Morley had seven. John Smith, who was Joseph Smith's uncle, would have ten. Zerabiel Snow would have three. Newell K. Whitney would have up to eight. And Orson Spencer would have six. Now, give or take, there are some air, margin of error here because 
these were secretive marriages and the records were a little bit scant and divorces were quite popular too. John D. Lee was said, John D. Lee of famous Mountain Meadows Massacre fame was said to have nine wives by the time he left Nauvoo and had married three all at once. And now remember, they're still Nauvoo. This is still secretive, but now babies are starting to be born. And as we learned in Helen Mar Kimball's case, her father, Heber, uh, gets married before she is married to Joseph and has a baby out of that union. And she remembers that baby and that happening. But of course, no one really knows that it's because of plural marriage yet, unless you're in the inner circle. Now, there are some rumors, and uh, of course, this is unsubstantiated, but there are several men that would claim this. John D. Lee was one of those that understood that if they committed adultery first and slept with the woman, they would be able to be sealed to her. Lee cites this as coming from Joseph from the Nauvoo period. There is some criticism with those accounts because Lee is later excommunicated and killed for the Mountain Meadows Massacre piece. I don't think we can dismiss him because of that. He was a very fanatic Mormon, very faithful to Joseph and Brigham. But we do know that he often used doctrine to kind of back up his own behavior. So there are some stories, especially in southern Utah, where men knew that they could have sex with a woman outside their marriage and then... Everyone would say, oh, no, what have you done? And, and they said, oh, well, I want to get married to her. Um, there are some interesting stories of this happening. Sometimes, according to Lee, it worked. Sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes they would say, nope, you're, you know, you're both in trouble, and they would separate the couple. Sometimes Lee kind of intimated that some of these, uh, this adultery wasn't always consensual, that it was uh, if a man wanted a woman and she didn't, consent to it, that he realized that if he, you know, raped her, John D. Lee did not use that word, but that's the word I'm using, basically uh, besmirched her virtue, then she would marry. Then she would have to marry this man, which is um, kind of a gross, gross offshoot, a perversion of this interesting practice to begin with. After the secession crisis, Lorenzo Snow enters into polygamy. Uh, George Miller would marry three, but later would disaffect because he disagreed with Brigham. Joseph Young, Brigham's older brother, would have six wives. David Fulmer would have two. Joseph Fulmer would have three. It's so interesting to talk about these women as if they're cattle or possessions these men are acquired. They're all become a number. That's kind of the problem with polygamy, especially in a religious pra- practice. You get reduced to a number. So let's go back to Nauvoo. These men are all acquiring these women. These relationships are being formed. In many ways, it was a good distraction from the chaos going on. And in many ways, it was a cohesive thing. It it formed unions. It, it organized these people. Of course, it didn't organize all the people. But those in the know, it absolutely organized a lot of these saints. It starts helping them organize wagon parties down the road and and things like that. But these people are being tied together now. It was, I guess you could say it was an almost like a being assigned to your own ward is now, you know, these people were now bound to these other people through very secret practices. And it really, it really did help them later on. The saints have a lot of political pressure now to go West. Basically, people want them to take polygamy with them and leave. And 
the leaders now, after session crisis, Brigham is able to convince basically the majority of church members that he's not, he's no Joseph Smith and he's not going to claim to be a prophet. But the Quorum of the Twelve can rule as a church instead of a prophet. And it sounded like a very humble way to do it. But then, it, you know, by the time Brigham comes to Utah, everyone's calling him prophet and president of the church. But at the time, Brigham has everyone convinced, like, this is the way to do it. So he has a lot of followers. They're talking about possible routes. They could go down to, to Texas and Mexico. They could go up to Oregon. There, there are all kinds of options for them. Emma gets a sort of escape from the practice and doesn't have to live in its shadow, although polygamy is always going to haunt her life and her children's lives. They decide to go west. Brigham would initially take 15 wagons and start out with about 50 members of his family. He would organize the first companies in military-style camps, groups of 10, and eventually he, this organization, his brilliant organization skills, albeit not perfect, uh, helped thousands and thousands of saints get to the Great Basin. The first band to make the entire trek to the West was handpicked by Brigham Young. It consisted of 143 men and three women. Clara Decker was one of the women. She was Brigham's plural wife. Harriet, Harriet Decker and Lorenzo's wife had, let's see, Harriet Decker, Brigham's Brigham's plural wife, Harriet Deck, Lorenzo's wife, and Ellen Sanders, Heber's plural wife. Those three women got together. It was supposed to be only be men, but Lorenzo begged that his wife accompanied, accompanied him because of her asthma. And then she, of course, begged that Clara attend the company because Clara was Harriet's daughter from her first marriage. I want you to to think on that. As we go in, we're going to talk about what it's like moving west as it's like traveling in polygamous families. And then we're going to break down and I'm going to introduce you to some of these women. Hopefully they don't just become a number, a property value, a jewel on the celestial crown of a, of a leader of the church. Hopefully we can get to understand them. But I want you to think about this now as you go on with your day or whatever you're doing this week. Think about what it would be like to be fervently uh, dedicated to a religious movement. This isn't just a religion. This is a religious movement. It affects every aspect of your life and you're sacrificing. Your prophet is just killed. You are terrified. You know you have enemies that will kill you. And you also know that you are right in doing what God wants you to do. And you also are asked to bring another wife into your family, your neighbor down the street. Her husband's just died and she needs a husband. And now she is going to be your sister wife. I want you to think about that. And then I want you to think about what it would be like to say, okay, now with all of that that's happened, now you have to leave your homes and we have to get out of here. And you're going to take your new family members with you. So sit and think about that, and we'll get into that in our next episode. And thank you for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives. Please leave a donation if you feel so inclined on feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org, and thank you for listening.